The title of this evening's talk is Self, No Self, and the Creative Process. And I'd like to begin uh, this evening, this discussion, with a few moments of as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. So settling into your seat, to your body, your heart. Towards the end of that long and now very famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed and aversion and delusion at at Siddhartha Gautama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about to be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, and balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night over 2,500 years ago, but we sit 
And we practice with great sincerity and determination. At home alone, maybe with your sangha, your practice community, and here now in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were so perfectly in place when Siddhartha sat that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart, these capacities of mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep practicing. Probably to each one of us has come some unexpected, unsuspected, and maybe even exceptional moments during times of simple presence. Moments of a clear, unfettered attention. Moments we could call spiritual attention. Our heart, mind, opens and relaxes. It eases in the midst of a simple, direct presence with things. And it seems that, for many of us, often it's in the world of nature where this happens for us most easily, at least at first. At times during these moments of spiritual attention, it's as though we fall through ordinary appearances. We fall through ourselves, fall through our usual habitual selves into an intuitive place of the essence of things. We may find that our heart, our mind, opens with an unfettered receptivity, a kind of radical acceptance, into a deep sense of connection and selflessness, or what's sometimes described as a wholesome emptiness, inwardly, and outwardly. It's in these moments that we may touch the boundlessness, the wonder, the very transient, constantly changing radiance of life. For maybe just a moment, we might dissolve with a boundless heart, mind, out of our seemingly separate, solid, static sense of self into the surprise of the moment, the unexpected surprise of the reflection of the truth and wonder of it all, the just isness of it all, the surprise of a momentary experience of a not separate self, the surprise of a healthy emptiness, an unconditional moment, waking up 
in that moment to the reflection of the heart, the mind's true connection. This is where the essential energy of creativity resides and where it blossoms from. Our meditation practice with its roots in mindfulness and investigation is what develops and sets up the internal conditions for the blossoming of wisdom and creative expression in its myriad manifestations throughout our life. In light of our discussion this evening, I'd like to offer you a definition of mindfulness that I think um, may be very helpful in that mindful presence is a powerful way of changing the mind, changing the heart, and thus changing the way that we relate to ourselves, people, things, and situations in this world. Connecting with an open-hearted, clear awareness is what's needed in all instances. And the metaphor that the Buddha used in relationship to this necessity of mindfulness is it's needed as a seasoning of salt is needed in all sauces. So this definition of mindfulness. Mindful awareness is about paying a kind of extraordinary attention. A non-judging non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting attention to present moment experience, both our inner experience and in relationship to outer phenomena as well. And sometimes this might feel kind of like a magical relationship to things, though I don't at all mean the magician's magic that in fact creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion. The seeming magic of mindfulness is a connected, interested, open-hearted, mindful presence that takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, and brings us directly into reality. The other essential aspect of our practice that moves the heart and the mind out of the habitual, our habitual rea- relationships and reactions and towards the blossoming of wisdom and creative expression is what we could call the activity of mindfulness. And this is investigation, the discerning aspect of mindfulness. This active aspect of mindfulness is what clearly illuminates the object of our attention, lighting up all of the sense door and mental experiences right into their core. With mindfulness and investigation, we find that the darkness 
of not seeing, the darkness of delusion and the darkness of ignorance is dispelled. When things are brightly lit, so to say, what's actually already present is then clearly seen, is clearly known, and confusion is dispelled. What this means is is that we experience directly, meaning that we experience things directly without the mediation of concept. Practice itself is very akin to creative process, which, as many of you here know, is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And so for most of the rest of our discussion this evening, I'd like to more specifically explore the creative process as practice, with mindfulness and investigation being the roots from which stem the beautiful blossoms of wisdom and creative expression in its myriad manifestations. Creative process as an aspect of our practice is potentially a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions, and a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So for instance, whether, it's, uh, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of moment-to-moment creative visceral response through the moving body, or through receiving what's seen with the eye without interposing the self, meaning contacting things directly, letting, for instance, the hand and the pencil follow what the eye sees without the thought of making a picture or the thought of being creative. Or, be it trusting the process of thought and words arising as though from nowhere, as though from no one, thus creating the conditions for the immediacy and spontaneity of simply letting writing flow from this empty space. With each and all of these experiences being about engaging in creative process as practice. In light of this, I think it's uh, fair to say that the creative process is about forgetting what we've previously learned, which is actually a necessary step in responding more directly and seeing and sensing more precisely. So in using these particular examples, 
we come to know that an aspect of creativity in moving, in seeing, drawing, and writing is forgetting. Forgetting what we think we know about the subject. And even forgetting what we've been taught. Meaning in this case, what we think we know about drawing or writing or what we think we know about how we shouldn't or should move the body. Forgetting in this way stops the mind from knowing in its habitual conditioned ways. And what happens at this point is that one is confronted with the object itself. And one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart, the mind, is open, receptive, appreciative, able to really, truly respond to the inner voice, the tone, the shape, the texture, with genuine authority and autonomy. What is it that keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? One artist's reply was, the fear of losing control. I think that many people experience not knowing as feeling dumb or feeling stupid. But I have to say that some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had in which truth was revealed to me, that all of these experiences had the quality of bearing witness or just simply being there, simply being here with a tremendous and yet relaxed interest, meaning a very open-hearted, connected, mindful attention and discernment rooted in humility, and no need to make meaning. In our practice, and this includes creative, the creative process as practice, until we can suspend the need for meaning, we actually can't experience direct revelation. We can't experience insight, wisdom. Though without a doubt, there's an ancient and subconscious urge for creative life and inventiveness in every single one of us from our very beginnings. It's not so easy to be unarmed, to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identifications. Fear can sometimes leap up in us 
And so we train the heart, we train the mind slowly and with great care to clearly see the nature of our constraints and to let go. So, for example, in relationship to the first domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. What we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. For many of us, much of the drama of our thought feelings and actions begins with sensations. Through mindfulness we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them, to be present with the sensations of our body isn't an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, metta, with equanimity and with grace. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different. And not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and know our activity as belonging to life. So, simply, in a simple way, we might wash the dishes as an act of generosity and love. And in that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, feeling and knowing what the wrist and the fingers and the hand is doing. We feel, maybe, or feel our body contract and turn away from very hot or very cold weather. And we catch ourselves. And consciously, with awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment, to feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. In relationship to various movement practices and walking practices, and in our ordinary, everyday movements, movement invites attention, asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves, not in a self-centered way, but as an act of loyalty, we could say. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we learn to inhabit ourselves, inhabit this body in a wholesome and a wise way. Someone once said, I think it was a dancer, once said, this body is tremendously homesick for us. 
and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training to be fully alive, that we only lacked the determination to feel our aliveness, which then quite naturally opens the heart, opens the mind to myriad creative expressions of this aliveness. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things themselves, he said. But the way to them can be difficult as we're faced with our self, our seemingly set, solid self. It seems that many, many of us are overtrained, we could say, regarding ourselves. We're actually the center of our attention, usually, most of the time. Consequently, it can be very difficult to come and see a hipasika, as the Buddha invites us, to come and see beyond the notion, this notion of a self. Engaging in the creative process with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness can really be a wonderful vehicle towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, and the essence energy of creativity, all of which helps to create the conditions that allow the direct revelation of insight into the way of things. I've learned a lot from children in this area. In my early 30s, I taught art at, at an alternative school for a number of years. The five to eight-year-olds just loved painting. And sometimes I'd ask them to paint in relationship to a particular theme, but often it was just a free expression painting. And one morning when I was walking around and looking and commenting on various paintings that were in process and those that were already finished, one little boy came up to me and he said, You always like all of our paintings. How come? Well, this little boy really noticed something, and he asked the right question. Children sometimes have a way of saying things that kind of stop us in our tracks. So I thought, yes, I do. I do like all of their paintings. How come, I thought. Well, I don't exactly remember what I said to him because it was many years ago but something I said something about honesty and expressing from the inside and how could I not feel anything but appreciation I could ask questions and occasionally make suggestions but there wasn't anything to dislike or anything to feel critical about because each 
persons painted from their honest expression at that moment. Well, this little fellow seemed to understand because he kept shaking his head up and down as I was talking and gave me this big beaming smile. As adults, can we be so unarmed in our creative expression while at the same time being mindful and seeing clearly, receptive to the right answers that show up, simply show up, to our perennial questions regarding the way towards really, truly being happy and at ease in this life. Can we as adults be so unarmed so as to allow the life force within us to catalyze into creative life with a purity and intensity devoid of personal pride or self-judgment, no conceit of self. And simply be what? Simply be who we are by birthright. One of the creative endeavors that has been part of my life off and on over the years since I was in my early 20s is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person being the live model for each piece of work. This work has been a deep, powerful, and direct practice and a metaphor of practice for me, particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, investigation and discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom which are the seven factors of enlightenment. So just to share a a little bit of this process, uh, as I think it might be a useful illustration in the context of our discussion this evening. In order to create the likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous depth of mindful investigation must take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, the face. How to see it as a whole and then know it, both in its wholeness and in its particulars, so that the seeing and the knowing can be transferred through the eyes, the mind, the heart and body, and out through the hands and fingers into the clay. A daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds, actually thousands of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head and face actually begin to break down into a series of relational forms. Forms that exist only in relationship to each other 
and in this case, forms that exist only in spatial relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There are just a series of relationships to be known. And it's a very intimate process, much more so than if I just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity, fixedness, and separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away in moments. What is this nose, this eye, this chin? Any nose, any eye any chin. Seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles moment by moment by moment. Seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye, and on and on and on. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out of my fingers, and into forming the clay, little by little by little. And as though, magically, a face emerges out of the clay, a face that in fact bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. it's actually not so easy to uh, render this creative process into words. So I hope that what I've said uh, has been at least somewhat communicated and helpful for you. As I've already mentioned, the practice of vipassana itself is an art and in many ways very close to the creative process, as I'm sure some of you are aware of. During one particular period, time period, when I was deeply immersed in the sculpture work, I went to see a film at the movie theater. And I was really quite struck that evening by all of the faces of all of the people in the theater lobby, each one having all of the same equipment, (laughs) noses, eyes, mouths, cheeks, chins, foreheads. And yet each person's face 
being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how all of the parts were interrelated. My awareness that evening just kept jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the one and the one in the diversity. That evening, for those few moments, that wasn't separate. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower ornament sutra, which is revered as a great treasure of sensual imagery and is considered to be one of the highest teachings of the Buddha in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism, there's a short section in this sutra that elaborates on my very brief and small experience that night in the theater. And this is from the sutra. The Bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable, and the immeasurable in the one. And in this uh, case, meaning the immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow, the process of life as it unfolds. And the sutra goes on. Birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature, and thus unreal, and cannot touch the enlightened one. The nature of things quite naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice, rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. The Japanese philosopher and teacher and author of The Way of Tea speaks about this in a lucid and succinct way, and he says, named, his name was Yanagi, he says, they saw. Before all else, they saw. They were able to see. Ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. There's a difference between the person with a mind unconsciously steeped in me, mine, and I, and the one who lives, sees, senses, feels, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states of body and mind. The difference is that in the narrowness of the mind steeped in me, mine, and I, there's a very strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and fears that arise, which is actually a very painful place to live one's life from. With the mind, the heart, that's steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't then very often caught or very often thrown off or ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see, 
we sense, we feel what is. And we know it beyond the seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by the hopes and the fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come, we let them go, as they naturally do anyway. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often. Mindfulness Direct investigation and discrimination of experience is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only on the intellect. It's merely cerebral understanding, a kind of imaginary understanding. And as many of you know, it's impossible to think our way out of tension and stress and confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into truly letting go. We can't think our way to liberation. Awakening is beyond or beneath the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple. Someone once described their experience to me as it being cellular. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind, interested in the heart. And he goes on to say, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. As awakening beings, we're moving toward our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. A really beautiful description that Sayada Upandita uses for one who is awake, a real human being. A wise, open-hearted, caring, and compassionate human being with our innate capacity for creativity and inventiveness flowing freely. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer out to the world. Closing the talk with a poem by David White 
called Tilico Lake. In this high place, it's as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. And let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments. Mm 